Today's episode of The Keith Law Show is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. I'm Keith Law. Welcome to episode nine of the Keith Law Show. I will be joined shortly by Dr. Paul Sachs, who's the clinical director at the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And he will talk to me a little bit about baseball and the current pandemic and how we might see any baseball played this year. First, just a couple of administrative notes. I am recording this on April 20th. On Tuesday, April 21st, my new book, The Inside Game, will be officially released by HarperCollins and William Morrow Books. You can buy it anywhere you purchase books right now. I am sending readers who are looking for an online link to bookshop.org, which is a wonderful site that supports independent bookstores across the country. Feel free to buy the book wherever you'd like to. Obviously, I appreciate that. I will. I have been asked, is there an audiobook version? Yes, it is also slated to come out on April 21st. It is not read by me. I apologize. Several of you asked if I had read it. Uh, that just did not work out this time. It also should be available in Canada and even in the UK. I don't know about a UK release date, but I have at least authorized, signed my part to make that happen at some point, hopefully in the not too distant future. I should also mention there's a book that came out a week ago called Future Value by Eric Longenhagen, who was my guest on episode one of this show, and Kylie McDaniel. Eric is with Fangraphs. Kylie is with ESPN. They have written a book on the history and future of scouting, which I think dovetails very nicely with my book. As I said, I wrote the foreword for that book. I think it's excellent. Uh, I think it is also a must read for serious baseball fans, particularly if you are interested in prospects. For subscribers to The Athletic, I had a piece jointly authored with Eno Saris last week where we talked about the five tools that scouts use for position players, evaluating them, how scouts evaluate them from a traditional perspective, which I wrote. And then Eno looked at each of these stats from a more analytical perspective and tried to look at which types of advanced data might help illuminate those tools, which players actually show on the field the best or worst tools in each of those categories. We will have the pitching equivalent to that piece up at some point later this week, I think Wednesday or Thursday. It is mostly written. And then on Monday morning, an excerpt from the Inside Game also ran on The Athletic for subscribers. I look at base rate neglect and why teams take too many high school pitchers in the first round. I will hope you will check that out, and I hope if you enjoy it that you will choose to buy my book. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by Dr. Paul Sachs. He is the clinical director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital and also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Uh, He's also a huge baseball fan, which was part of how Paul and I first uh, managed to interact, ended up interacting on, um, on Twitter. And he sent me, tweeted at me, a piece that he wrote uh, called Dear Nation, a series of apologies on COVID-19, what I'm sincerely hoping we'll be hearing in an upcoming press conference and soon. We have not heard those apologies yet. And I said to Paul, maybe we shouldn't hold our breath on that. But he's here to talk about baseball and and the intersection of baseball and this current pandemic. So, Paul, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Oh, thanks, Keith. It's, It's a thrill. Thanks for having me. So let's start by talking about the the question everyone asks, and I get asked this on the radio all the time, which is a bit unfortunate because I'm not really qualified to answer, but is, are we going to have baseball this year? When might we have baseball? What might it look like? I guess. I mean, honestly, I just give guesses, but I feel really uncomfortable 
because it's not my field. I know there's a lot of uncertainty even among the experts. But what is your general answer, I guess, to questions like that about what what we might see of baseball or even just other pro sports? I think a lot of it has to do with how quickly we can get into place the key public health interventions of widespread testing. And that, as you probably know, widespread testing has been kind of the the challenge for the United States right from the start. And things are much better now than they were, but we still don't have quite the range of testing, either on the PCR side where you're detecting the virus or on the antibody side where you're detecting people who've had it and are potentially immune. And once we have that in place, then I think we can make a much better uh, guess or much better modeling prediction about about when we can get back to things like professional baseball. Yeah, that's one of the things that I keep coming up against. Again, like I, like I said, I, tr- I try to sort of answer the questions, but you know, but also keep emphasizing it. I don't know; it's not my field. But the, I, I feel like people who ask that, well-meaning people, even ask that on the radio, they sort of get away from, they forget how many people are still involved, even if you have a game without fans. Yeah. You know, and I feel like that sort of underestimates, one, just the number of people there, and two, what could happen if one infected person, especially if they're asymptomatic, were to be in, say, a major league clubhouse with 30 players, a bunch of coaches, support staff, and then maybe you let media into, that just makes it worse. And And that seems like that's a difficulty even before you let fans in. Yeah, it's a it's a huge it would be a huge challenge. And one thing that we've learned is that if you with this virus that if you don't take seriously the idea of limiting large gatherings, large meetings that you can get these super spreader events where one person could potentially infect many others. And you know that happened in Boston, there was a biotech company that had a meeting here. It's mm-hmm. happened in a number of different concerts. It's happened in a variety of different parties. And these are these are events we really want to avoid. And and in without that very broad testing and a really understanding of a little better understanding of transmission dynamics, it's going to be very difficult to do this. Now, uh, by scientifically, is it possible? Uh, biologically, certainly. I mean, if you have nobody entering this closed environment with the infection, then then that is very safe. Um, mm-hmm. But it's logistically going to be very, very difficult. But we'll say one other thing, just, you know, I, I bring this up because I'm an optimist by nature. Um, <laughs> coronaviruses tend to be seasonal. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, we heard some people say, oh, it's just going to all go away when the weather's warm. That We don't think it's quite like that. But there is a very good chance that just by the weather getting warmer in the northern hemisphere, that things will improve here. And certainly I'm I'm hoping for that. In the emails you and I exchanged, uh, you brought up a couple of interesting points that I want to let you talk about here. And first of all, you just talked about the, the missed opportunity of testing. Mm. You just talk even a little bit about that, but also sort of what has to happen for us to have public gatherings of some sort again, but fans are no fans. Sort of where do we have to be in general terms in testing to even think about doing this? Testing has to be readily available uh, just to assess both active infections, because those are the people who are likely most contagious, as well as immunity. And, you know, it's very exciting to be in this field right now. I hate to, to put anything positive spin on it, but but what's so exciting is the pace of scientific discovery. And one of the reasons why initially I was very optimistic that we'd be able to get control of it is because in China, they did a huge favor by identifying the virus, by having a test for it, by di- showing the, the clinical characteristics in people and what the risk factors were for severe disease. So we really had a head start in, in trying to figure this out. With all this information, scientifically, we can generate accurate tests uh, and get them 
manufacture it. What we can't seem to do is get them manufactured at scale. Uh, what this uh, epidemic has done is it's disturbed our supply chain. So even though we have these tests and you hear them announced all the time, uh, there isn't quite the volume of tests that's necessary to really make this happen. That's what's been surprising to all of us. The supply chain interruptions turned out to be very fragile, much faster than we thought. Uh, and it occurred really rapidly with certain things. It occurred with not just testing, as I've mentioned, but also occurred with things like personal protection equipment, you know, which, which you know, who knew that we were so close to being, to overwhelming that system. Uh, I guess the people who were modeling epidemics knew, but there was really no no way of of sort of solving that in the places that were hit the hardest. Yeah, there was, this is a bit of a tangent, but there was the BBC's podcast, The Inquiry, asked what happens if COVID-19 hits Africa. And I mean, oh, really, like, obviously, yeah. some cases have been there, but what happens if they really have outbreaks? And they were talking about how there are entire countries where you might have two ventilators for 15 million people. And I would imagine the situation is probably the same for, say, personal protective equipment. Yes, absolutely. Right? If we can't get them here, they're not going to get there any more quickly. No, abs absolutely. And I actually have a colleague who works uh, at, in the Indian Health Service uh, out, mm -hmm. out in, in the Southwest, and, and he is facing this right now. Uh, they really don't have any PPEs at all. Um, one one uh, other thing that we really would like to learn is is what is the uh, range of how what proportion of people who get this have either no or mild symptoms it's still not exactly known and the estimates vary hugely it depends on the population and it depends on, on 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 other factors that we can't really figure out yet but so those are those are key questions and um we'll we'll have to wait and see i, I don't think we're going to have baseball um in the month of may but but i don't say it's 100 percent impossible that we'll have it this season uh, that's good. I would like to see it for both personal and professional reasons. Uh, another thing you said in our email exchange, uh, I'll just quote you one line here. One thing that's interesting is the contrast between the pace of scientific discovery, remarkable, and the slowness of our public response. Yeah. And I, I think that's particularly come up in my reading when we talk about the vaccine. We're talking about having a vaccine maybe within 12 to 18 months, which sounds miraculous mm. by, by historical standards for vaccine development. It would be extraordinary. Um, it is wonderful that vaccine candidates were already being cir circulated for review uh, almost within a month of the virus being discovered, which is really unreal. Getting an actual vaccine into the public, though, is much more difficult. You have to show that it works, that it actually protects people. You have to show that it's safe. Actually, usually do the safety part first, then you show that it works. And this is not something that you can do um, quickly. You cannot accelerate this process. And I, I think that the record for the fastest time from a vaccine starting the process of researching it to getting it out is, is four years. So we would have to accelerate this process enormously. Uh, that said, I know... Uh, many really smart people who are putting all their energies into this. Uh, and and so, you know, again, going at the optimistic side, maybe we can do it. And I'm certainly, certainly hopeful. There, I've seen articles, pronouncements. There was a piece by Steph Epstein, who does really great work for Sports Illustrated. She talked to one or two uh, folks like yourself. And one of the lines that came out of that was essentially, no vaccines, no sports. I, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but it was fairly dramatic that we couldn't have not i mean without fans without the vaccines you couldn't even have gatherings like that mm. again mm. i don't know right i'm not 
I know nothing about this, but does that, do, it sounds like from things you've already said here in our conversation, you might see a little more variance around that. I do. You know, uh, let me, let me bring up Zika. You know, Z- mm-hmm. Zika shows what happens when a new virus enters a community and Zika entered a community. And w- when it did, it would just it rapidly uh, infected the community. So very, very quickly. And with some very tragic consequences, remember, that could cause birth defects. Right. Uh, but it also generated immunity in the people who had it. And so after a while, you know, the mosquitoes that were required for transmitting Zika to other people just didn't pick up the virus. And it kind of just went away. And no one completely understands why Zika went away. But it is plausible that if there enough of the population has acquired this already – that there will be enough community-based immune protection that the transmissions will go down substantially. So if you combine that with what I mentioned about the seasonality of coronaviruses, uh, it is plausible that this will you know, go away on its own in a way or go away till it becomes much more like seasonal influenza than it is like current COVID-19. Because current COVID-19, even though it's compared to seasonal influenza, is much worse. Uh, so, so if it becomes another seasonal influenza-like respiratory infection, then, then we can certainly have gatherings and sports and restaurants and all those other things that we love. You just reminded me too talking about seasonal influenza. So actually, I got the flu shot this year because, of course, I get it every year. Good and for then- you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And I encourage everyone to do so every fall. And I always tweet that I got my flu shot um, just to encourage other people to do so. I get accused of virtue signaling. I don't really understand how that's like a virtue, whatever. Like, just go get your flu shot. But one thing, I actually ended up catching the flu um, Mm. and got over it literally in 36 hours. My fever was completely gone. I also got Tamiflu. But, you know, my doctor said, essentially, because you got the flu shot, body, your immune system was primed and potentially ready to beat it off. But even she said at the time, you know, Tamiflu helps a little bit, but we don't really have a lot of medicines to directly attack the influenza virus. Mm. And the sense I get is that certainly there's nothing actually out there, despite what you might read on the interwebs. Mm-hmm. There are not actual medicines out there for this virus. And it, it, my understanding is that's not very likely that we, we would see a medicine, at least in the near future, for COVID-19. Well, um, so we, we – so far, I have a very poor track record. Uh, this is an athletic site, so I can use that metaphor. We have a very poor track record with treating respiratory viral infections. Aside from influenza, we don't have any treatments for viral respiratory tract infections. So there's no treatment for the common cold, uh, there's, there's, uh, et cetera. There's no treatment for the other coronaviruses or adenovirus or RSV. I mean, these are a whole load of viruses that cause respiratory tract infections. So this would be a first uh, when we have one for uh, – SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19. Uh, mm-hmm. But but actually, there is a, a, a promising drug uh, in the sort of later stages of development called remdesivir, and that's moving through clinical trials fairly quickly. It might work. Uh, we don't know. We don't have definitive evidence yet. Uh, there are several other candidate drugs that are kind of being developed. So I, uh, having, having watched drug development for HIV, uh, which was sensationally successful, and then mm-hmm. hepatitis C, which is even more successful. I do think that we will be able to get an antiviral drug that is effective against SARS-CoV-2. So that I think will happen. What is not proven yet is that hydroxychloroquine, which is a repurposed rheumatology drug, a repurposed malaria drug, is a proven therapy. That is clearly not the case. That needs to be proven in clinical trials. But I do have hope about antivirals for this this disease. 
the last question I have just on that, and then we'll talk baseball, okay. baseball stuff, but uh, just pure baseball. But if you were asked to advise the players' union, I think we all know that, you know, obviously the owners want to play, right? They, they yeah. have a huge financial incentive to have some kind of games this year. What kinds of things would you advise the union to go for in, a, in a, any second agreement now that involves fans in the stands? Not, for, not financial stuff, but for player safety, player health, I'm sure they're going to have a lot of questions. Um, and uh, about how they're going to be protected or what will happen if someone gets sick. What are the kinds of things you would at least encourage them to to think about and push for negotiations? Yeah, well, that's an, an excellent question. And, and it is an impressive union. The players union mm-hmm. is just like the model, I think, for, for all professional sports. Um, I would focus on safety uh, as the main the main driver. And that means access to testing, appropriate uh, ability to, to, you know, stay separate from people who potentially have the infection. Uh, and then also about about freedom. I think one of the things that concern me about the plans for um, playing is the idea that you would quarantine people uh, who play baseball just so they could play baseball. You know, a quarantine is really is, is really not <laughs> not a good way to treat human beings. So I, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's a, a good approach. It, it would work, uh, but it really it really isn't. You have to let people see their families. Uh, and and that's 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 just critical. I think that was Mike Trout who, who said, you know, look, I know he wants to see Cooper, <laughs> you know, yeah, Cooper's, right. So that's that's, <laughs> that's understandable. <laughs> so, yes. And once you start the idea of quarantining players with their families and suddenly the circles get larger and larger and it becomes less feasible. Of course. Of course. Logistically, it'd be very difficult. So you live and work in Boston now, but you confessed to me on email (laughs) that you grew up a Yankee fan. So did I. Actually, my parents from the Bronx, I grew up on Long Island. So I am a, you know, I'm not a fan anymore because I can't be, but I certainly was one for a very long time. Um, And, uh, you mentioned also, though, that spending a lot of years watching, because you've been in Boston a long time, uh, spending a lot of years watching like the peak Pedro years and the Red Sox World Series winners. So I guess just talk a little bit about that yeah. that dichotomy. You're in the heart of enemy territory. Now. How do you? <laughs> how how can you still root for the for the evil empire? Well, you know the way I spin it, and it is spin, is that I say to my patients and friends who are diehard Red Sox fans, I said, if you move to New York, would you switch and become? A Yankee fan. And they, of course, say, of course not. Well, I said, well, why would you expect me to switch and become a Yankee fan? And then I acknowledge the silliness of fandom to begin with. And one of the great things about baseball in my adulthood versus childhood is that there's a much more interesting side of baseball than fandom. And that's the analysis of it. And, you know, I I sort of got a, a whole second wind of baseball fandom from the great baseball writing uh, in the early internet days. And, and that has just been a wonderful discovery and in so many ways. And, and sophisticated baseball analysis is a huge, hugely entertaining part of how I spend my time. And, and some would say waste my time, but that's, that's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> it's true of all our hobbies, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It, it really yes. is a hobby. I mean, I love, I just love uh, good baseball writing and good baseball analysis and, and uh, <laughs> can, can bore non-baseball fans endlessly on this topic. <laughs> so you mentioned also, Nima, that your uh, sort of formative years as a Yankee fan were some of the worst years in Yankees history. The, yeah, most of the 1960s, the early 70s. Mine was not quite that terrible. My most formative years, I don't remember the 78 World Series. I was five, so my mom swears mm. I watched 76, 77, 78 with her. I remember 81, which, uh, of course, is a terrible d- year to have. Disappointing. 
right? Yes. Yeah. But the whole thing, the split <laughs> season, everything. <laughs> and then they were the profligate second place Yankees, basically. Oh, yeah. You know, trading prospects, spending too much money and never getting over the hump. Yeah. It wasn't until 96, by which point I was an adult, yeah. that they actually won something. And yet somehow you and I kind of both stuck with it, which, yeah. I, you know, going back to the irrationality, but it's funny that that's formative years, even watching a incredibly frustrating team still locked us in. Yeah, my, my my brother, my older brother was was a huge baseball fan and and he liked the Yankees and he told me you should root for them because they always win. Well, you know, it turns out they, they didn't always <laughs> they don't. win in the, in the 1960s. <laughs> in the 1960s they were they were bad. They finished in in last place uh, in 1966 and then in 1967, which was one of the great years ever in the American League, you know, the mm-hmm. incredible race that finished the year with four teams nearly tied at the end. I watched you know, the Red Sox um, and with Carl Ustremski leading them away, you know, have that magical season. And, you know, it was very exciting, I have to say, even though it wasn't my team. And then I watched the Mets win the World Series in 1969. So a lot of the great baseball memories of my childhood were everything but the Yankees. And it wasn't until they became good again in the 1970s that I really started to enjoy both baseball for baseball's sake and baseball as a fan, because they were so frustratingly bad up until then. And you say profligate. I mean, talk about profligate. They, they would have these huge payrolls uh, in the 90s, and they would they would barely win anything. I mean, it's just it was dreadful. The second place, right? you know, exactly. Right. So. Well, I'm, my, you know, I remember, you know, Steve Trout, you know, the trading of Jay Buhner. Before that was a Seinfeld joke. I remember yes. it saying, Why, what are they doing? I saw Jay Buhner hit a grand slam at Yankee Stadium. He was one of my favorite <laughs> prospects to come up at the time. And, and then Fred McGriff. I, Fred, yep. Oh, my God. You look at the, the – I mean, they could have clearly fielded a championship team with what was sure. in the system. They just didn't keep anybody. Right. And then the my senior year of high school, I graduated in 1990. So the one of the worst years in Yankee history. Terrible. Ha- just happened to coincide with me being really busy with graduating from high school last summer with my high school friends, going off to college. It's like I just kind of stopped caring for a little bit. And then went yeah. to college in Boston, obviously, as well. So that just made things even more distant. Um, you know, and then kind of didn't pick it back up until the kids started showing up. It's like, oh, these guys might be credible again. Like, there wasn't even a thought <laughs> we're heading towards the 96 World Series. It was just, they might not be so bad. Yeah. And that, that I, I think I got lucky. Like, if 1990 had been a more formative year for me, maybe I, you know, my whole life could be different because maybe I'm not the same kind of fan. Yeah, well, it was it was that that that, that late '90s team was just magical. Uh, you know, there yes, was so much about them to like, uh, mm-hmm. starting with their manager. You know, their manager really, uh, in in a amazing way, navigated George Steinbrenner's craziness, mm-hmm. uh, and had a very a very pleasant face to the public, and has got his got his players' respect too. Um, it was really exciting. That, um, but I, I had no when the. Uh, Yankees lost the 2001 World Series right after 9-11, which I, I consider that Game 7 probably <laughs> the most. <laughs> I mean, my Red Sox fan friends would say, no, it's got to be a Red Sox loss. But that loss to me was, as, as a Yankee fan and as a fan of, of my home hometown of New York, watching that happen was just so painful, uh, especially <laughs> after those incredible comebacks they had yes. earlier in the series. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I realize we're very lucky. I mean, people who have the Yankees as their favorite team were so lucky. They, they haven't been bad since the early 90s. It's really it's just right. unbelievable. Yeah, they've been competitive in some way. Right. They've been competitive. That's exactly what I was going to say. They've yeah. been competitive. They haven't been bad. Even in their mm-hmm. worst years, they've been competitive. I did see um, 
a near-perfect game thrown by Tom Seaver uh, at Shea Stadium, which oh, was wow. very memorable. That was that was one of the most amazing games I've ever seen. And then I mentioned in my email to you, I was I had part of a season ticket package to um, at Fenway Park during Pedro's two sensational years in in Boston, and mm-hmm. watching him pitch um, at at Fenway, which you know so many of the seats are so close, and seeing some some p- pitcher so dominant was was just one of the great baseball thrills in my life. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's something about seeing a player like that at his absolute peak, um, especially when now that now you have those memories, and you look back and you realize, wait, I just witnessed I witnessed one of the greatest you know performance in one of the greatest pitching seasons of our lifetimes. Right. Yep. Right. Especially given what was happening in baseball hitting at the time. Yes. <laughs> Tim Kirkjian has argued for a while that's the greatest season he's ever seen. Pedro's the one with the sub two ERA. Um, where and you know it's hard to argue the statistical case actually backs him up. I think Tim was making a more subjective observational case, but also the stats kind of back him up. If it's not the best, it's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 you, there it, you had this sort of expectation that he every single game he could pitch a no hitter. Yep. Every single game, if a man got on base, that person wasn't scoring. There was just no way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yet the offense in baseball at the time was exploding. So the contrast was just it was just remarkable. So, yep, absolutely. Paul Sachs is clinical director of Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. And he's also a Yankee fan. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Keith. That's all for this week's episode of The Keith Law Show. Again, my book, The Inside Game, will be released on April 21st. You can buy it on bookshop.org or Amazon or anywhere else you choose to buy your books. I hope you'll check it out. If you have questions about the book, I will be doing a Q&A at The Athletic at some point in the next week and also would be more than happy to answer questions around anything you see in the book on my next podcast dropping next Monday, April 27th. Thanks so much for listening.